Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. It's exciting times in the world of taxation. After several outlines and frameworks, we finally have a tax plan with some details. After a brief last-minute delay, House Ways and Means Chairman Kevin Brady released a tax reform bill on November 2nd. Titled the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the bill deals with corporate and individual taxes and makes fundamental changes to the way income is taxed in the U.S. Joining me in the studio this week to help us sort through all the proposals is Tax Analyst Vice President of Editorial Operations, Jeremy Scott. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, I should note for listeners that we are recording this at noon on November 8th. The Ways and Means Committee is currently holding a markup on the bill, so a lot of what we're talking about is subject to change. Jeremy, Republicans build this as a middle-class tax cut with also some cuts to corporate taxation, but mainly as a, as a middle-class tax cut. Uh, what did they deliver? Well, they did deliver a comprehensive bill. It's probably a lot more detailed and affects more of the tax code than people thought. And quite frankly, I think it's, it is a little bit more skewed to individual tax cut and individual tax changes than some people expected. So the main changes uh, are on the business side. The, the big headline is going to be the cut from a 35% to a 20% corporate rate. But that doesn't mean that the individual side ended up being just window dressing. So basically what they delivered, it's a one5 trillion dollar net tax cut. That means that it loses $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. That was the parameters they were given in the budget, and that's the parameters that they stuck to. That number is deceptively small because there are many trillions more of dollars behind the scenes that are shifting. So it's not just that they reduce taxes $1.5 trillion. They have changed probably five, six, seven trillion dollars worth of taxation by changing who's paying what and when. And so they did deliver a major package. On the individual side, they took us down to four brackets. It was originally supposed to be three, but they decided to keep that fourth 39.6 bracket in for people making a million dollars or more. The other brackets are 12, 25, and 35. That's a drop from seven brackets under the current system. They basically are eliminating almost all individual deductions or at least capping them. And this was a big thing. Originally, we were told there were going to be several big deductions that went untouched, like the home mortgage interest deduction, the charitable deduction. That did not end up being true. Um, We always knew they were going to cap the SALT deduction. What they did in the House bill is they limited it to $10,000, up to $10,000 of property taxes, no state and local income tax deduction anymore. But they capped the home mortgage interest deduction. They said they weren't going to change it, but they did end up changing it. So new home purchases after 2018 are going to be subject to a $500,000 cap. And that is a $500,000 cut. The cap is currently $1 million. In addition, the initial draft eliminated every other individual deduction, medical expenses, adoption expenses, long-term care, all gone. And this was a shock to a lot of people, particularly people who wanted to focus on the adoption credit. As the markup goes on, we're expecting maybe the adoption credit will come back. It's a relatively small provision, but it, it makes for bad headlines for them. Individual AMT, gone. Uh, estate tax, eliminated after six years. We knew we were going to get an estate tax elimination, probably didn't expect it to be phased in like that in the House bill. They also retained step-up in basis at death. Every estate tax repeal plan that we've heard prior to this year would have gotten rid of step-up in basis at death if the estate tax was repealed. For whatever reason, the House GOP kept step-up in basis at death and repealed the estate tax. 
I wouldn't expect that to show up in the Senate bill or in a final provision, but it is a strange thing. Did not quite double the child credit, as many Republicans were calling for. Child credit goes up to $1,600. Only 1000 of that is refundable. And then there's this very odd $300 family credit, which is probably attempting to make up for the loss of personal exemptions, which are also repealed. So those are the individual changes. Um, did it deliver as a middle-class tax cut? That depends on who you ask. A lot of middle-income taxpayers are going to benefit from a doubled standard deduction. A lot of them are going to benefit from the new rate structure, but not everybody. There are middle-income or at least upper-middle-income taxpayers who may see a tax hike under this just because of how the deductions and the new brackets shape up. And so you're hearing a lot of Democrats. You're hearing a lot of advocacy groups talk about how this is a giveaway to the rich. They're primarily focused on the new bracket structure and the repeal of the estate tax and some business changes we'll get to in a minute. But I think that if you pushed a lot of people, they would say it actually is a little bit more generous to individuals than they were expecting. A little bit more of the net tax cut is concentrated on the individual side than people were thinking when they saw the frameworks and drafts. So I I think it is debatable how much of a middle-class tax cut it is, but it, I think it's a little bit more than people were thinking, say, last week before Brady released the details. The real action, though, and the real impetus for the bill, no matter what they say, is on the corporate side. And as I mentioned before, big changes, 35% corporate rate down to 20%, a 25% special rate for pass-throughs, which involves a lot of detail that has yet to be sorted out as to who would qualify for this. There's a couple of tests, neither of them particularly easy to understand. It's a switch to a territorial system, but again, some caveats on that. There's still elements of worldwide taxation. There's a deemed repatriation tax on foreign earnings, maybe with a rate a little bit higher than people were thinking. People were thinking maybe a 10% rate. This is going to have a 12%, 12 12.5% rate for cash, uh, 5% rate for non-cash. Again, how that's defined is very complicated and probably subject to change. It has some anti-base erosion rules in there, including an excise tax that is changing as we speak uh, at the House markup, and it eliminated the corporate AMT. So Again, um, it is a big change on the corporate side. There's a lot of business tax cuts, a lot of business changes, but there are a lot of pay-fors on the business side as well. A lot of deductions eliminated, the Section 199 manufacturing deduction gone. Everyone expected that with this kind of a rate cut. But I think it, I think people maybe were a little bit surprised at just how skewed toward the individuals it was. A lot of the talk this year, the individual side is going to be window dressing to cover up a corporate tax cut. We got the big corporate rate reduction, but because of the other shifting pieces, I think it's a little bit more focused on individuals than we were thinking. Okay, well, there's a, a lot there to unpack. Um, why don't we uh, why don't we sort of go through and, and talk about uh, talk about the the individual sections of of, of this proposal. Uh, going back to the individual taxes, uh, what effect will this doubling of the standard deduction be on uh, on families, given that they're losing other deductions like uh, the reduction in the state and local tax deduction? Well, I think, again, that's going to depend on your income level. A lot of people are going to benefit from the doubling of the standard deduction. It's going to create a lot more 0% taxpayers. In fact, Republicans, when they released the bill, were touting the fact that it had a rate, like there is a 0% bracket, uh, a group of people who will pay no income taxes. We already have a lot of people in this country that don't end up owing any net income taxes. This is going to make even more of them. So there are people who will benefit from a doubled standard deduction. There are a lot of people that this is just moving the deck chairs a little bit. Like you will get a doubled standard deduction, but you're going to lose your SALT deduction. You're going to lose your medical adoption expenses. So like 
you're not going to see much of a net benefit because you're basically trading one tax uh, benefit for another. And then there are going to be people, people who are going to itemize no matter what, that this doubled standard deduction just simply doesn't affect. And those people are going to lose on the deduction side because they're going to lose their state and local income tax deduction. They may suffer from the mortgage interest cap. These are sort of high income earners, maybe coastal people, certainly more urban areas. They might see a net increase of taxes because of the deductions. And then it's going to come down to where do you fall within this bracket structure. The bracket structure, as I said earlier, it's pretty generous. The 25% rate goes all the way up to $260,000 for a married couple filing jointly. That's pretty high. A few years ago, people were defining $250,000 as the beginning of the, quote, rich. Like that was the limit over which that they thought that pet people should be paying higher taxes. Republicans say that that's the second lowest bracket, 25%. So you could end up with a tax cut just because of the rate structure, even if you do lose access to deductions and can't take advantage of the doubled standard deduction. I do agree with a lot of the advocacy that's out there. You're going to be able to find cases of people who are going to lose from this. Um, Middle-income taxpayers who are losing more deductions than they're gaining in rate cuts. And I think Republicans have been really careful to respond to a lot of those allegations to sort of get out in front of them and say, no, those people would actually suffer a tax cut. It's just you have to look at the whole package together. But I I think that there are going to be some middle income earners, like I said, primarily coastal people, primarily what others might think of upper middle income earners uh, who could see a tax increase just because of the way the repeal of the deductions and the way the rate structure is working. And because the standard deduction doubling doesn't benefit everyone. It, it really only benefits people who were on, right on the line of whether to itemize or not. Uh, the, the mortgage interest uh, reduction, uh, uh, capping the loans to $500,000, that seems like a provision that would be fairly controversial with certain interest groups. Yeah, and, and to be honest, the Republicans lost one of their biggest allies when they released the bill. They had pri- they had previously been working with the National Association of Home Builders, the, the sort of people who were responsible for home manufacturing, and they had expected – that group had expected the mortgage interest deduction to either remain unchanged or be transformed into a credit. Uh, a credit would have benefited people who were not itemizing, meaning it would have been had greater access to lower middle-income, middle-income taxpayers. Republicans did not go with the credit, and they did did cap it. And so now basically the entire real estate and home building industry is opposed to the bill. The realtors were always going to be opposed to it. They're opposed to any changes to the mortgage interest deduction, even turning it into a credit. And now the the home builders are also behind it. So yeah, the, the mortgage interest deduction change, as people might have expected, is very controversial. Who would it affect? I mean, it would affect more people than Republicans are letting on, particularly with the way some of the CPI and um, inflation things are moving. And so it's going to affect anyone in an urban area and a suburban area. It's going to affect coastal voters. It's going to affect high tax, high, you know, primarily these high tax blue states that you hear talked about in regard to the salt deduction. The mortgage interest deduction is also going to affect them. So New York, Houston, the Washington, D.C. area, the entire state of California, these are going to be areas that are hit by this mortgage interest deduction change. And again, it's only for new home purchases after a certain date. The If you have a home right now that you're deducting a million dollars in interest on, you can continue to do that. But when you sell that house and buy another one, you're going to get capped at 500000 And there are many areas in this country that that means that cap is going to come into play uh, with people's next home purchase. So again, controversial, maybe went a little farther than people expected, definitely turned off some interest groups that had been working with Republicans hoping to be behind the bill. 
Now, you mentioned uh, CPI, and there is a, a change in the inflation measure that they're using for brackets coming uh, in this bill? It's true. Uh, they've changed the way inflation is measured. I believe now they're using a chained CPI instead of the previous. They say it's more accurate. I think um, that it just simply lets them raise more revenue. So the, uh, it, it's a, a lower measure of inflation, and therefore the brackets would sort of creep down? Is that yes, how it works? Yes, gradually the brackets, yes. It, you, you, the brackets would not be moving as fast with inflation as they do now, meaning that more people would gradually slip into the higher brackets. I believe that there, in the last couple of days we've seen a few studies saying that a lot of people who get a tax cut in the first few years of the bill, once they creep up into the next bracket, once they get pushed into, say, the 25 or 35 percent bracket from the lower brackets, would see a tax increase in later years. Republicans say that's not true. That's sort of an area of argument going on right now in the Ways and Means Committee. Okay, let's talk about the uh, the estate tax changes. They're, they're uh, eliminating the estate tax, at least temporarily, I believe, um, but not making any other changes uh, to step up in basis. Why don't you first off uh, explain uh, why is the step up in basis so important? So they, they are phasing an estate tax reduction in in six years is actually what they're doing. And oh, right. what's happening is they're doubling the exemption immediately, and then the estate tax is going away in 2023. Step up in basis at death is a big deal. It basically, what step up in basis at death means is when you pass away, your stock gets marked up to its fair market value, meaning your basis in the stock steps up. And if you sold it, you no longer are going to be taxed on the gain. This is a big deal for highly appreciated stock, long-term family assets things like that. Traditionally, people have, when they have proposed a state tax repeal, they have also proposed getting rid of step up and basis of death. It's essentially the idea of you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're not going to pay an estate tax, then you can't also be exempt from the gain on highly appreciated assets. The Republican plan keeps the step up and basis of death even after repealing the estate tax in 2023. I believe the reason for this is they were attempting to tell middle-income investors who did not pay the estate tax. The estate tax has a huge exemption right now. Very few people pay the current version of the estate tax. I think what they were saying is middle-income investors, you're not going to lose your step-up in basis at death just to pay for a repeal of a tax you never would pay. If that's true, they've done a very poor job selling it. A lot of people have said that this is a double giveaway to the rich. They're no longer paying an estate tax, and now they're not going to pay capital gains on highly appreciated stock. So it's a strange way to, to redo the estate tax. It is not likely to be in the Senate bill if the Senate bill has a state tax repeal at all. And I, I, I just would not expect this to survive. I, I think if, if the Republicans are able to repeal the estate tax, they are almost certainly going to have to repeal step up and basis of death as well. Okay. And let's, uh, let's talk uh, about the uh, changes to the, the corporate income tax. Uh, the president had originally proposed going down to a 15% rate, but a compromise was reached at 20% in all the various frameworks that have been coming out this year. Um, was there anything surprising in their changes to the corporate tax? Uh, the only thing surprising is a lot of people thought they might phase it in, um, they, that just to save a little bit of revenue, they wouldn't do the immediate 15% drop. There was some talk that the House bill might also make it temporary, although there's really no incentive for the House to make a tax cut temporary. It's Senate rules that might require that. So no, we got the 35% drop down to 20%. We did not get a phase in. It's not temporary. It's basically what was in all the frameworks um, after Trump sort of backed off the 15% rate or at least signaled that he would be accepting of a 20% 
20% rate, it's a big cut. Uh, I mean, many people were probably skeptical they could get to 20%. Prior corporate tax reform efforts had always focused on sort of a 25% rate, like a 10-point cut. This is a 15-point cut, and I don't, I don't think people were shocked to see the 20% number in there. They might have been shocked to see that there's really no there's no sort of gimmicks around it. It's, it's just a straight-up 15-point cut. And I think that we'll see what the Senate does. Uh, the Senate may phase it in. The Senate may sunset it. This is all because of different rules. But the House bill, straight up 35 to 20% cut. And I think this is the centerpiece of the plan in many ways. The, the impetus for the plan is the idea that the U.S. corporate tax rate is one of the highest in the world. It's certainly higher than our trading partners, certainly higher than the OECD average. Getting this down to 20% is a major change in the way the U.S. corporate tax system will work. It's a major change in incentives. Not saying you're going to see the end of income shifting, profit shifting, transfer pricing abuse, but certainly cutting the rate this far will change a lot of people's outlooks on the U.S. corporate tax system. Now, what effects do you expect from the change from uh, taxing corporations on a worldwide basis to taxing them on a territorial basis through this uh, dividend exemption? Well, theoretically, that's a huge change. Uh, going from a worldwide system where you're taxed on all of your income to a territorial system where you're basically only taxed on income in the United States is a major about-face for the United States. It's it's We're one of the last people who tax people on a worldwide basis. Previously, it was basically the United States and Japan. Japan dropped off this system a few years ago, so it's just the United States. However, there's a lot of stuff in the bill that sort of undercuts what the territorial system means. There's enough base erosion rules that it's not as radical of a move to a territorial system as many people thought, maybe as business expected. There were a lot of people very skeptical of the U.S. going to a territorial system who might be a little less skeptical now when they see some of the base erosion stuff. But on a theoretical basis, going to a territorial system is a really big deal. Again, it it changes a lot of the incentives for people to sort of pretend like they're not doing business in the United States. It may change some of the incentives around things like corporate inversions, or it may hyper-incentivize them. It just depends upon how the rules shake out in both the House and the Senate version. If you have a territorial system that's a little bit too leaky, the incentive is to say none of your income is earned in the United States because you're not going to get taxed on it. But this system is a little bit like I said, it's a little bit more of a hybrid system than people thought. It's not quite the radical change away from the worldwide system that maybe business expected or hoped for, and maybe even some earlier drafts were contemplating. The bill also proposes changes to uh, the way pass-throughs are taxed. Um, first, uh, moving it from uh, taxing you at your individual rate to a maximum rate of 25%. Um, what is the purpose of that provision? Well, basically the idea is is that not all business is done in corporate form. So corporations are getting a big tax cut, 35% down to 20%. The idea is to make the U.S. more competitive. It's to make the U.S. business climate more open to growth, create jobs. You can't really do that if you leave the pass-through sector behind. The pass-through sector has been a growing percentage of total U.S. business. It's the more pass-through entities are formed by far than corporate entities. Just a lot of business is done in pass-through form. Also, there's a perception, a perception perhaps created largely by Republicans, that most small business is done in pass-through form. So, so again, they're not going to benefit from a corporate rate cut. It's a fairness argument. If the corporate rate's dropping to 20%, you don't want to bias people in favor of a solution that might not of an entity solution that might not be the most efficient way to conduct business. So the idea is pastors will get a business cut too. 
the individual rates, as we said, 39.6 is staying as the top rate. So you have to create some type of an exception. And the exception they've come up with is business done in pass-through form will get a 25% rate if you can comply with a lot of tests. And the tests are pretty hard to understand, changing every minute. Um, the, the Ways and Means Committee is certainly considering how to tweak them. The basic thing was you have to make sure people are not treating compensation as business income. So you want the business income of a pass-through to be subject to a 25% rate, but you want someone's compensation from their pass-through to be subject to ordinary income rates. So there's like a 70-30 test that just automatically treats a certain percentage as business income, a certain percentage as salary. There's another formula that you can use that they think that manufacturing businesses will have to use. But those tests are going to be the area that many people were scrutinizing the most as this bill moves to passage because the I, the thought was it's going to be impossible for them to draft effective tests. It's going to be impossible for them to put guardrails in place to make sure people aren't disguising salary as business income. Now, the initial draft of the bill, the reaction was they've gone too far. The guardrails are too tight. The guardrails are too high. Not enough people are going to qualify for the pass-through rate. The, JT, the JCT's score of this provision suggests that actually maybe business is right. Not as many people are, were benefiting from it under the JCT's model as Republicans maybe anticipated. And so, again, they're looking at changing some of those tests. They're looking at making it a little more, a little easier to qualify as business income. You might see the percentages shift in that 70-30 safe harbor test. The Senate is certainly looking at that. But the pass-through provision is going to be probably the most controversial and probably the most exploited provision of this if it becomes law. And so I think they've got a lot of work to do on these guardrails to find that probably impossible perfect balance between being pro-business but not letting the base completely erode. So what's next for this bill in the House? So what's next is going on right now as we speak, as you alluded to at the beginning. The House Ways and Means Committee is doing what's called a markup of the bill. It's where they offer numerous amendments and create a final version to report out to the floor. We're expecting it to be reported out either late today or early tomorrow morning, and that means it is then eligible for a floor vote in the House. There will still probably be some changes uh, later today um, as the bill keeps moving through, but we're probably looking at about the final version that the House is going to report out at this point, barring something unforeseen. So that's the next step in the House. The House will then be eligible to have a floor vote possibly as soon as next Thursday. And that means the House could complete its work before Thanksgiving, which is what President Trump has been promising and a lot of people have been skeptical on. However, there's a whole other track, and that track starts maybe tomorrow, possibly uh, Friday, and that is the release of the Senate version. And so the Senate will release an, its own bill. The bill will probably follow a lot of the macro parts of the House bill closely. There is supposedly a framework that they're both working from, but the details are going to be very different. And the Senate bill will then go through the very same process the House bill went through, which is a markup in the Senate Finance Committee, followed then by a vote on the floor. But the Senate markup and definitely the Senate floor debate and amendment process will be a lot more complicated and a lot slower. So we'll have to see where we are after the release of the bill tomorrow and after finances mark up next week. But there won't be a Senate vote before Thanksgiving. At best case scenario would be a Senate vote sometime in December. And unless the Senate adopts the House bill, which is not expected, or unless the House agrees to just adopt the Senate bill, which is maybe a little bit more likely, but probably not um, what's going to happen. Then we would have to have a conference, and then a final bill would get reported out of that conference to be voted on by both houses, uh, yay or nay, uh, without amendments. 
That process could be finished by December 31st. It could be finished by December 25th. The Republicans have said they want to get it on the president's desk before Christmas. That's an aggressive timeline, but they've been following an aggressive timeline. This is an unprecedented speed to take on a bill of this magnitude. If the House gets to its vote by next Thursday, I mean, it's going to be a record and it's going to shock a lot of people, although I think that is I'm almost certain that's what's going to happen at this point, unless they lose support for some reason or another amongst one group in their caucus or another. So they're going to probably be hitting most of these timelines until the Senate starts its work. We just we just don't know where the Senate stands. The Senate has been unpredictable under Republican control this year, as was shown in the ACA. No senator has firmly come out against too many provisions of the bill. No senator has sort of unequivocally promised their support. So until we kind of see what the Senate bill says, we're not going to know the exact timeline in the Senate. But those are the next steps. House markup finishes this week. Uh, House floor vote probably next week. Senate markup starts next week. And then depending on how different the bills are, that's going to determine a lot of the next process and how deep into December and maybe even into 2018 this goes. Well, we'll have to check in again once we have a Senate bill to dissect. Jeremy, where can listeners find more about tax reform? So right now, Tax Notes and Tax Analysts is providing a lot of free tax reform coverage outside of our paywall. If you want to follow basically all of our tax reform coverage, you can do so at taxanalyst.org. There's an entire section dedicated to tax reform and with our latest news stories. There's also a selection of free content on taxnotes.com. And then, of course, we have the most comprehensive coverage available at taxnotes.com for our subscribers and readers. Thank you for being here. Thank you. That's it for this week. You can find me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to make sure you get the next episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.